0: If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. We'll be in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 44. This is the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up, and they heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is this. Hear, O Israel With all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices and when jesus saw that he answered wisely he said to him you are not far from the kingdom of god and after that no one dared ask him any more questions and as jesus taught in the temple he said how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of God, son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he only his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came. And put in two small copper coins, which together make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, even all she had to live on. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we open your word, and it has been read, and it will now be proclaimed. Father, our desire is that you would open our eyes, that we would see the wonderful things from your word. Would you use uh, your servant to build up your people, to point us to the beauty and loveliness uh, and magnetism of Christ, and would our hearts leave here satisfied with having seen him in this text? We love you, we bless you, forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I want you to think about uh, a passage in Luke for a moment. It's in Luke chapter two, you don't need to turn there. But in Luke chapter two, it's around the time of the Passover and Jesus and Mary and his earthly father have gone to Jerusalem as any good Jew would during that week and they would celebrate the Passover there. And then Jesus' family, they left, but they left Jesus thinking that he was in front of them when in all actuality, Jesus was actually back. And when Mary turned back around and made the journey back to Jerusalem, she found Jesus as a 12-year-old boy at the temple asking questions and answering questions of the religious leaders. And in the book of Luke, it actually says that he was sitting among the teachers of Israel, listening and asking questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is when Jesus was 12, during the week of Passover, he would rather be in his father's house than to make that journey with his earthly mother and father. And, and Luke actually tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Now, how is all of that related to Mark chapter 12? It's very related. You see, what I think is going on is that there's a bookend. Jesus, when he was 12, during the week of Passover, is reasoning with the scribes and the religious leaders. And as a 12-year-old boy, at, the, at that point in his life, they are blown away by his wisdom. But then something happens from the time Jesus is 12 until our passage this morning. He's now, you know what it is? It's during the week of Passover. You want to know where Jesus is? He's back in the temple. And he's not a 12-year-old little boy anymore. He's 31, 32, 33. And you know who he's reasoning with now? Maybe even the same religious leaders. And what we learn about Jesus in our passage this morning is he's grown strong, very strong. He's not a 12-year-old little boy anymore that he's a full-grown man, empowered by the Spirit. And he is engaging in a dialogue with the creme de la creme of the day. And we know who wins the battle, it's Jesus. Did you notice what the text says? Look at verse 37, 34. And after that, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Look at verse 37. And the great throng of people, they heard him gladly. What in the world just happened? Jesus is having conflict with the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, in the temple during the Passover week, in the company of a crowd of people. This is Jesus and and the highest of the highest of the land in terms of theological knowledge. And we see firsthand who wins the debate. It's Jesus. If you have watched the Meek Mill uh, documentary on Netflix, or if you've kept up with with hip hop and and what happens when when, when rappers want to be the king of a city, then what you'll do to be the king, to be crowned the best rapper of Philly, you got to go in underground Philly and you got to freestyle and you got to rap against all the best rappers. And guess who gets the crown? The crowd says who gets the crown by their applause, by their nod, when you battle this person in freestyling, the winner is crowned by the crowd. That's what happens in this text. Jesus goes to battle against the scribes and the crowd crowns him as being more powerful, more wise, more excellent. He's the victor here. Now, This all takes place in a temple where Jesus comes and he sees some things and he hears some things and he's not afraid to press in and to say, what I see is off. I wonder if Jesus came this morning through that door, would he be in conflict with us? How would we fare If Jesus were to come and to to do and engage us around a passage like this, how, how would you fare? See, I think the theme of the passage is loving the true God truly and real people rightly. How would you fare in that area of loving the true God truly and real people rightly? I want to look at this passage under this first heading What's not at the center of controversy? In other words, I want to I get to what's at the center of controversy. And, and, but, but first, I want to go through what's not at the center of the controversy, then what is at the center of the controversy, and then the third point will be, who is Jesus not in controversy with? Those, those are the three headings. What's at the center of controversy? Now, who are the scribes? They would be those in Israel who knew the written word of God better than anyone else in all of Israel. And they would have been the ones who knew the oral traditions of the Jews better than anyone else in Israel. As a matter of fact, to be a scribe, you had to have a special ordination. You had to, it had to be known by all through a time of testing and learning and training That the official spirit of Moses kind of rested upon you. That if you look at Matthew chapter 23, the scribes were known throughout Israel literally as those who were sitting on the throne of Moses. In other words, that was their reputation. Their reputation was, you, are, you guys, you guild, you're after the order of Moses. As Israel looked to Moses to lead and explain and to model, so that role was occupied in Jesus's day by the scribes. They were the most educated of all the groups of Israel. They were more educated than the Pharisees, more educated than the, than the Sadducees, more educated than the Herodians. They were the ones who when you had a theological conflict, that's who you went to to solve it. Now, we know this in Matthew chapter 2. Remember when the wise men came to worship Jesus and they went to Herod and they said, where is the king? We saw his star, a star guided us to you. And do you know what Herod did? Herod actually says, go get all the scribes. And all the scribes came to Herod's palace and they searched the scriptures intently and they told Herod, hey, we know from our knowledge of the Bible where the Messiah is to be born and then Herod did what? He said I want to go worship him, but Herod says no, I'm not going to worship him, I want to kill him and so I want to kill all the boys two years and under and who did Herod get that information from? It was the scribes. He reached out to them to help him understand where the Messiah was to be born. This is who Jesus is doing battle with in our passage. And they are unlike the Herodians who had a skewed theology. The Herodians worshiped government. They were not like the Pharisees who detested government. And they were not like the Sadducees who only believe in the first five books of the Bible and they deny the resurrection. When Jesus is engaging with the scribes, here is what we're gonna learn they have airtight theology, they give Jesus all the right answers. As a matter of fact, look at the dialogue between the scribe and Jesus Jesus, the scribe, like it's actually commendable. Now, now, notice how it flows. I think it's worth paying attention to it. Look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up, and they heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is most important of them all? Now, in Judaism, in Jesus's day, there was a great deal of dispute around the most important commandment. And the scribes actually went back and searched all of the Old Testament and they pulled out a number. They studied all the Old Testament and figured out that there was 16, no, no, 6, 613 commandments. If you go back and read all of the Old Testament, the scribe says there's 613 commandments and 248 of the 613 are positive. You do this and then 365 are prohibitions. You don't do this. And so, what they're asking Jesus is out of the 613 commandments, you tell us, Jesus, what's the most important one? You see what's going on? And Jesus is like, okay, y'all want to do this? Let's do it. Now, look at verse 29 through 31. The most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your affections, with all your soul, the very fabric of your being, with all of your mind. You have to think about what it means to pursue and love him and with all of your strength. It's not just in the mind. It has to translate with, with strength and, and posture and a desire and, and, and doing this. And then he says, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where did Jesus get those two answers to their one question? It came from the passages that Steve just read. Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema. We believe that every morning, if you were an upstanding Jew, you would rise and you would quote that section right there. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, he is one, and you shall love him. And the other passage is Leviticus 19, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice they asked Jesus for the greatest commandment, singular, and Jesus gave them two commandments, plural. Love the Lord your God more than anything. Desire him treasure him, obey him, worship him, long for him, and the flip side of that, and love other people, rich or poor, black or white, Christian or non-Christian, conservative or liberal, southerner or you're from the north, healthy or with special needs, young or old, you love them as you love yourself. Now, notice what happened when Jesus answered their question. Remember, at this point, the dialogue is commendable. Now, look at what happened when the scribe heard Jesus say what he said. Look at verses 32 to 33. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, the scribe then commends Jesus. And then look at what happens in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. Do you see how commendable the dialogue is? Jesus gives them a nod. All right, brother, you got the right answer. They give Jesus a nod. Okay, brother, you gave the right answer. Why does this matter? Because what's not at the center of this controversy is right knowledge. They know the Bible on par with Jesus or at least they think they're answering wisely as a matter of fact Jesus when he when they answer correctly they're giving him the right answers and so here's what I I, on one level I think it means that biblical literacy like actually reading the Bible and actually spending time in it and knowing the message of it Jesus actually gives a nod and says hey that's actually right How do you keep your way pure? By delighting in the law of the Lord. Like it's actually right to know the commandments of the Lord. Like Jesus is there and when you look at the totality of the Old Testament and you want to ask the question, what does all the commandments boil down to? Jesus says it's fairly simple. There's one coin and it's a coin of love. And on one side, We love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole strength. And you know what? The other side of that same coin, which cannot be divorced, is you love people as yourself. They wanted one commandment. Jesus says, I'm not giving you just one. I'm giving you two. It's a coin of love. One side, love is directed upward, and the other side, love is directed outward. That's it. Now, if it's not a matter of them giving the right answer, if the controversy is not about knowing the right theology, then what then is the controversy about? Which leads us to our second point. It's the failure to do what they know. They have right doctrine, but they don't have right living. And that's what Jesus is taking issue with, with the scribes. You see, I think there's a little humor going on in verse 34. Look at it. And when Jesus saw that they answered wisely, if you write in your Bibles, you need to underline they answered wisely. They gave the right answer. And then notice what Jesus said to them. And you are not far from the kingdom. Now, notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say you have answered wisely and therefore you are in the kingdom. He says you've given me the right answer and you're close, but he never says you're in. I don't know about you, but if your favorite team is playing basketball and your favorite team is down by three point two points and your favorite player with two seconds left goes up to make the game winning three point shot and he makes a close shot. Right. It, it, it almost goes in. It hits the rim and it jingles around the rim and rolls around the rim and it stays up there. Let's say it stays up there for 30 seconds. Right and it never goes through the net and it pops back out, do you know what SportsCenter is going to say about your team? They're going to say they lost. (laughs) Their record column is going to show an L. It's not going to show, man, they were really close. History does not care how close you were to making a game-winning shot. It's either you made it and you win or you missed it and you lose. And so when Jesus says, you gave me the right answer, but you're close to the kingdom, what he's really saying is you gave me the right answer and you're not into the kingdom. You get it? Now, the scribes think that Jesus is done. Because the crowd is just hushed and they're mesmerized. But Jesus is like just getting started with these jokers. Look, the reason I put all of these together is because he's talking to the scribes in verses 28 through verse 34. But look at how 35 begins. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes? Look at verse 38. And in teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. In other words, they think Jesus is through with them. He's not through. He's actually saying, they give me lip service. They're telling us they have airtight theology about loving God and loving neighbor, but I'm going to let y'all in on a secret. And it reads as if Jesus might be saying this behind their backs, but he's not. Because when you turn to Matthew 14, they hear all of this. Jesus ain't no coward. If he's going to say what he's going to say, he don't care if you dare to listen. It's when they hear this stuff right here, they get upset and they're ready to kill him. Here's how I think these next two sections are, are related to the first section. They say they love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus says, nah, let me show you that that's not true. As I also think that there's something going on in how the scribes address Jesus. Did you notice what they said to Jesus in verse 32? Because in verses 35 through 37, we're starting to see that they don't love the true God truly, and in verses 38 through 40, they don't love real people rightly. And so how do we know that they don't love the true God truly? Look at, how they, look at how he answers Jesus in verse 32. You are right. You have said that he is one and there is none other besides him. Now, I think the emphasis is on the oneness of God. Because here's what it means. Jesus, if God is one That means you're not God and if you're not God then you're a fraud did you notice what Jesus actually defends right there in verses 35 through 37 he doesn't defend his humanity he defends his divinity why because the scribes for all of their knowledge they don't have a framework of the Trinity. And they're seeing Jesus only as a descendant of David and not as a descendant of the eternal God. And so that's why Jesus, notice what he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is only, I'm putting only there because I think it feels out what's happening in a translation Only the son of David, when David himself in the Holy Spirit. So notice what Jesus does right there. He mentions David, but he mentions that when David wrote, he wrote in the power of the Holy Spirit way back there in Psalm 110. And what did David write? He wrote the Lord. If you go back to Psalm 110, the Lord is capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh said to my Lord capital L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D, which is the Hebrew word for Adonai. He said when David wrote in the power of the Holy Spirit, he saw something. He saw Yahweh say something to Adonai, who is my Lord. You wait until I make your enemies Your footstool, and so Jesus says, if that's in Psalm 110, who is David talking about? David cannot be possibly talking about his earthly son just by the flesh, he would not call his earthly son by the flesh his Lord. No, he is ascribing a second person of the Trinity. David saw, writing by the Holy Spirit, there's the Father, and the Holy Spirit is leading me to write this, and I see this, and there's a third person. And it's not just a physical person. It's my Adonai. It's my Lord. And so Jesus is saying, how can the scribes keep going around here talking about they love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength, and they're rejecting the son whom their father has sent. I think what Jesus is saying at the least is it's impossible to love the father without love for the father bending And moving towards a worship and adoration and preoccupation with the Son and the Spirit they come to us as a package deal you take one and remove the other two you have nothing it's not biblical affection for God he is one God Three persons equal in deity, worship, power, eternality, and divinity, and they're all to be worshiped. And what Jesus is saying, you don't love me, and you don't recognize me, and you don't desire me. And therefore, no matter what you know or say, you're fraudulent. But he moves, right? He goes further. They actually says they don't even love real people rightly. And that's what third, verses 38 through 40 is about. He continues to bring the heat. Jesus, who was 12, is now 30, 31, 32, depending, 33, depending on how old you think he is. But for 20 years, he's watched them. And he says, I know what they look like in the marketplace. I know what they act like in the synagogue. I've been to feast with them. I know what they do to widows' houses. I know their postures at the bank. And I've watched them pray these long prayers. And what Jesus is saying, they don't love real people. Now, how do you know they don't love real people? Look at what Jesus says. He says, whenever they go to these different spaces, I'm watching. And so, when they go to the marketplace, what? it's like going to Whole Foods, right? Or Kroger. Or Piggly Wiggly or McDade's, what are you thinking about when you go to the marketplace? About buying produce and food. Maybe some cereal, some Pop Tarts, right? You're thinking about getting things to put on your table. In Jesus' day, when you went to the market, it wasn't just food, you could go buy a lamb, you could go buy olives. You could go, a carpenter will put his woodwork on display, and if you wanted to go and get that new dining room table or a couch or a chair, you would go to the market. But at the market, the focus of people at the market is on the stuff that people are buying and selling and stuff you need. And here's what Jesus is saying about the scribes. When they show up at the market, it's not about the stuff. It's not about your livelihood, your food, the carpenter's business. It's not about any of that. They walk in the marketplace, and you know what they want to put on? The first thing they want to do is put on the best clothes. We're going to put on our long, flowing robes. Because when you see us, you're going to see us. We're going to step out this thing fresh, right? Like, we're going to come in here, and we're going to be dressed to a dime, all eyes on us. And we want you to greet us. When we walk through, we want to be famous. We want you to take your eyes off them olives, take your eyes off them tables, take your eyes off them fish, and you need to pay attention to us. He says, I've seen them. The marketplace is the stuff to get stuff from the market. It's not a place to get your ego stroked. They're narcissistic. You would think it would change. When you go to the synagogue, but look at what he says. When you go to the synagogue, the place where the worship of the Lord is preeminent, where the knowledge of the scriptures is preeminent, where we're singing hymns and making a joyful noise to the Lord, the focus of that time is upward. And notice what they want to do in the synagogue. They want front row seats. They want to be right up here. Never mind that little James can't see behind no six foot dude, right? Who wanna get the best seat in the house. Never mind the so-and-so back there who has a hard time hearing. And so somebody's up here preaching and we don't have amplified sound, but but the, but the scribes want to be up front, up front near the communicator, so that somebody in the back who needs to be in the front, there is no room to come to the front because the scribes want you to know that they're in the business and they're here in the building. They're selfish. Something as loving as letting the kids sit in the front. Something as loving as going in the back and letting the people who have a hard time of hearing come to the front it never crosses their mind. It's about them when they show up in the house of the Lord. And then when they have feast, never mind that somebody just got engaged. Never mind that somebody got a promotion and they want to throw a big party. You want to be right there next to them to get your picture in their picture, right? Hashtag, I made it, right? That's their posture. They want to be up front. And then look at what they do to widows' houses. Look at what Jesus says. They devour widows' houses. And that's an idiom, which means that they take them illegally. And I don't know what it means. Nobody knows what Jesus means when he says they devour widows' houses. It could be that it's predatory lending going on. It could be that they're trying to get the titles of it and, and get ownership of it and put her out. It could be that they're over the monies in the bank. We don't know. But what Jesus is saying is, look how they treat widows who are on top of grieving the loss of a spouse, now they have to lose a house at the hand of the scribes. And on top of all of this, when they come to the temple, they're the ones up front praying the longest and most flowing and biblically accurate prayers you'll ever hear. He says, but I see through it. They don't love neighbor as themselves, which leads me to a question. If there was a spiritual litmus test, where the Lord himself could just test and just say, hey, where are you with your love for me? Not your husband, not your wife, not your children, not your job, Not yourself where are you with respect to loving me with your whole heart your whole soul your whole mind your whole strength how would you rate and does that worship and obedience and love does it move us right to a worship and love and adoration for Jesus How much do you think about Jesus? Or you ponder him, his character. And and it's not what you say, but in your heart of hearts. like, Like, where are you? And what about love for neighbor? How you doing in that area? You see, I think it's helpful to look at the second table of the law. If you're looking to ask, Do I love neighbor? Here are some questions. Do you honor your parents? Are you quick to obey? Quick to serve? Quick to spend time with them? If you're a father, do we discipline our children in the Lord? Do we, in the words of Deuteronomy 6, do we rise and do we talk about the goodness of the Lord in our rising and in our walking and in our playing and in our eating and in our resting? Do you murder? Do you spiritually abuse or physically abuse or verbally abuse others? Do your words tear down? Do you gossip or do you murder reputations? Do your tweets or posts post or words tight with your own hand? Do they wrongly harm? Do you promote life? Not just in the womb, but until the tomb. Do you care about the rights of children and the rights of inmates? Do you care about the poor and the marginalized? Do you open your mouth to share the words of truth with the dying? Do you commit adultery? Do you look at others with lustful intent? Do you think about modesty so as to not cause others to stumble in that area? Do you deny your spouse? Do you desire what you do not have? Are you content with who you are and what God has given you? Do you steal? Do you covet? You see, I have a sneaking suspicion that if we're all honest, we don't do this well. We have idols we turn to and we love things and people and ideas way more than we love the one true God. And we don't love our neighbors as ourselves, we don't. That's the bad news is that we have airtight theology. And we can be just like the scribes where we give the right answers. But when it comes to giving real grace, when it comes to doing all the things required from the law, we fall short. Here's my last point. Who is Jesus not in controversy with? It's a widow, y'all. It's a widow. Like, look at how it flows. He's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching. And then look at verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury, and then Jesus watched. Now, it might seem that this widow and what we just talked about are not connected. But I want to make the case to you that it is connected. Whose houses did the scribes devour? widows there's a connection there that i think what jesus might be saying is the reason this woman is poor and she only has two pennies to put in or one penny two coins Is because y'all who've been talking about loving the lord your god with all your heart soul, mind and strength you are the blame she's poor and, and i'm and i'm holding you accountable but there's also another connection with this word too They ask Jesus, give us one commandment. Jesus says, I'm not giving you one commandment. I'm giving you two commandments. And this woman walks right in after that instruction, and she puts two coins into the treasury. I think we're supposed to see this as a unit that's bound together. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the temple. And so I got a book on what the temple is like. And here's what I learned about the temple. That where Jesus is when all of this happens is in the court of women. Now, how do we know he's in the court of women? Because in the court of women, there were 13 boxes that went all around the court of women. And the reason the 13 collection boxes were put in the court of women, because that was the space where men, women, and children could gather. Now, women could not go further because that was where the men went. And so where the, 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 the things for the, the collection plates were put, they were put in the place where everyone could gather. And guess what? It was 13 of them. And if you put some in one, your, your offering covered the price for the sacrifice. If you put some in this one over here, your offering paid for the wood used in the temple. And if you put one over here, your offering went and it paid for the metal that you needed for the temple. And if you put one over here, guess where it went? It went to care for the poor. In other words, I think what we're seeing here through this woman is a picture. It's a picture. It's a picture that not everyone in Israel are frauds. There are real people walking into the temple who love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, who also love their neighbors even as themselves. And what Jesus is saying, and it's not who you think it is. You might think it's the most learned You might think it's the most educated, but my kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Let me show you who is really embodying what I'm talking about. It's a poor woman who has nothing, who is totally depending on her God and her king to supply all of her needs. Her heart is not divided. She loves him. And it's being evident in her generosity where she pulls out the last that she has and she says, here, Father, I love you. And I trust you. And this is my last, but I love you and I am devoted and here it is. And I also love the poor. And can you use this other piece of money I have? Can you take half of this and use it for the worship of the Lord? And can you take this other half that I have? Can you make sure that those little kids who don't know how to read get a chance to read? Here it is. It's all I have and I lay it at your feet. She's being held up as a picture. Which makes me think. That Don't we need pictures of people who don't just talk it, but live it? That's what Jesus is doing. He's actually saying, yep, see, my word is not returning void. I know what you hear. I know what you see. But I got some in my squad who love me with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they love neighbor as themselves. And there she is. Can you think about being a new mother, a first-time new mother, and you bring your kid home, and you calling your mama like, Mama, the kids won't sleep. They got diarrhea. I'm, getting, I'm waking up all through the night. What do you want more than anything? You don't want your mom to just talk. You say, Mama, can you come and spend a, spend a week with me? Can you, like, show me how to be a mother? I really want to love my kid, and I really want to do it. And isn't it helpful when mother shows up, who's mother, kids before, and she walks in? Baby, this is what you got to do. You got to sleep when the baby sleeps. I know you're going to want to get up and clean up and do all this stuff, but when that baby go down, you got to go down. You need a picture of somebody who's gone before you and is this not true for our growth in the lord don't we need to see people who walk it and talk it that's why paul says older women train the younger women they're not going to figure it out on them on their own they need you paul says imitate me as i imitate jesus there is something built into our dna Where we need to see pictures of grace personified in other people. And so I want to ask you this question. Who are you around that shows you what it's like to worship and love the Lord and to love people? Who are you learning from? We're a young church. And we actually need those of you who were further along in the way. Pull us to the side. Encourage us in the Lord. Show us what a life of faithfulness and godliness looks like. We need it. But it's not just a picture to be admired. It also exposes the possibility that as we look at these people, We're not supposed to just put him on a pedestal. We're supposed to have hope. He's been faithful to his wife for 50 years. She's been walking with the Lord for 50 years. That's not just to prop them up. It's to remind us that that can be us. Do you read the Bible? as a glass half empty? Or do you walk away that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you can change, which moves us to the power we need for that? You see, when we look at these other people who are further along in the way, we're not just looking at them. We're looking past them to the one that they have their eyes on. And it's Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength. Even when the Father said, go to a cross, Jesus was there to stand and salute and say, yes, sir, not my will, but your will. And Jesus went to a cross as the epitome of love for neighbor. He went to the cross because of people like me and you who don't do this perfectly. We need him. And on the cross, we see this beautiful combination of love and devotion for God and love and devotion to neighbor. And so this week, reflect on that. G.K. Beale has a book, and it's entitled, We Become What We Worship. And he makes this compelling case through all of Scripture that what we feast our eyes and hearts upon, that is what we become like. He uses Exodus 32, when they made the golden calf and they fixed their hearts and desires upon it, that it actually says in the language describing them that their stiff neck, they would not obey, they were let loose, that they needed to be gathered into the gate. G.K. Beal says that is all rampant cow language. They are worshiping a cow and now they have become like wayward cows. And here is what he goes on to say. He goes on to say that the main idea of the book of, on idolatry is that people resemble what they revere, either for ruin or restoration. People will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or some feature of the world. And so here's what I want to leave on our hearts this week. The way to be this, fix our eyes on Jesus meditate on him savor him worship him make much of him learn from him rest in him and you will find yourself by the power of the spirit loving god and loving neighbor let's pray father would you write these truths on our hearts lord we know the right answers We're asking for right living. Would you do this that Christ would be honored? In Jesus' name, amen.